Hello, listeners, and welcome to Fantastic Voyage. It's a podcast about David Bowie. I'm Jesse, here with my brother and co-host. And I'm John. Here on Fantastic Voyage, we're going on a chronological journey through the career of one of our favorite artists, an artist that we both cherish and one that's near and dear to our both of our hearts. And who might that artist be? David Bowie, who we've mentioned already, actually, now that I think of it. <laughs> did we? Uh, we did. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, spoiler alert, it's David Bowie. Uh, so John, what are some of your earliest memories of David Bowie? Why are we, why are we such super fans of this, of this musician? Some of my earliest Bowie memories, oddly enough, come from the record we're going to talk about today. Our dad is a huge, huge fan of Bowie's Deerham period, which is probably a driving force and an influence on why I'm a bit higher on that record than most, but we'll get to that later. Uh, David Bowie's self-titled and the Ziggy Stardust album, I think, are his two favorites, or at least the ones I remember hearing the most around the house growing up. I can remember one specific occasion where dad was blasting the Ziggy record in our basement and mom got mad at him, you know, she's yelling... (laughs) turn it down, it's late, you know, and, and I was down there listening to it with them, and uh, he showed me the back cover and pointed to where it said, to be played at maximum volume, you know, when records used to have that sticker on the back all the time. I love those uh, hype stickers, yeah. That was kind of like his little, you know, wink, wink, she's in the wrong here, we're going to blast Moon Age Daydream whether she likes it or not. <laughs> that's funny, Moon Age Daydream, that's, that's the first, he must have really liked that song, that's the first time I remember, or the first time, like, song that I remember. Uh, by David Bowie it was it was actually the I'm a mama papa coming for you when I was a little kid this is like before you were born um, I'm I'm six and a half years older uh, so definitely different time but I uh, I remember hearing the mamas and papas line I was a huge mamas and the papas fan so I thought oh this is cool so it, for some reason that stuck I uh, caught my attention um, I remember the Rebel Rebel riff too. Dad, I think Dad actually said that his the first time he ever discovered Bowie, it was Rebel Rebel on the radio. So he had that album, and I remember actually Chant of the Ever Circling Skeletal Family was kind of one of the. I kind of thought that Ziggy and the Deerham era was it. I, I didn't know any other Bowie for the longest time uh, until I did a deep dive kind of later in life. Uh, but yeah, those were my. That was my introduction to Bowie was, yeah, this, I I think if you ask dad, if we were to phone him right now, he said, when did Bowie peak? He would say uh, 67. (laughs) Pretty similar for me. uh, Those records obviously were from the same house. We'd be, you know, listening to, to the same stuff. Um, A couple of my first ever purchase purchases that I can actually remember were these three cassette tapes that I scored at a garage sale when I was maybe five years old, uh, just with some pocket change, money from taking the, out the garbage or cleaning my room or something. And those tapes were Bowie's debut, uh, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, and Pinups. So those are a few of the albums I was familiar with, at least early on. Uh, it, it was a very young age. It goes back to about as early as I can even remember anything. So those three plus whatever other records our dad owned on vinyl. Uh, you mentioned Diamond Dogs. I remember Lodger. Really just whatever our dad was playing or whatever he had laying around that I could get my hands on. Uh, you and I both grew up in the in the 90s. So 
getting a hold of music wasn't as easy as it is now in the smartphone age. You basically had to own the physicals if you wanted to hear something. We wore uh, but, those those Beatles albums. We wore them, like actually wore them out. I hear people say, oh, that's been worn out. Like, no, we it actually can happen. Those records are shot. So you basically you had to own the albums back then to to hear anything. But that would obviously soon change. My growing fandom for Bowie really began when I discovered Torrance in 2007 or, or whenever that really took off. Uh, FBI, if you're listening, I'm only joking. Uh, <laughs> I downloaded Bowie's discography because that was a big thing back then. If you wanted to see if you liked an artist or not, you just download their entire catalog, which is almost like a form of music commission because if you had the money, you'd still go out and buy the stuff you liked. This was just a means of assuring yourself that you weren't throwing money down the drain. You just bought what you liked. And so during this period, I got familiar with a lot of the records our dad didn't own. Um, I remember discovering Hunky Dory in this period. You know, that was a big one that was missing. Uh, but even with his entire catalog downloaded to, downloaded to my uh, 156 gigabyte iPod classic, I still never found the time to explore at all. Uh, you know, what's considered the prime of the Berlin trilogy, like Heroes and Low. Yeah, I didn't really get to those to like maybe the mid 2000s, like kind of shortly before his passing. I, I think that sort of coincided with your growing Bowie craze around that era. And those were two records that I'd sort of glossed over on first listen, but I, I think they, they, they grew on me with age. I, I think it was my first year of university. So 2010, might've been winter of 2010. I remember probably using the torrents that you had downloaded shortly before that. I, I remember, remember when you discovered that you can make MP3 CDs and you could fit like 150 or 200 songs on one CD. Right. You used to put those in the, uh, when you were driving the cobalt. Was yeah, it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. RIP cobalt. We, yeah, I, I, I loaded everything from, from 67 like self-titled up until probably scary monsters all on that list or, or sorry all on that uh on one cd and i just listened to it to and from university of winnipeg like every single day because it was like oh my goodness there's so much more and every album is is different for the most part uh and that's when i got into low for the first time i remember be my wife really stuck out it was like oh like this is this is different without being totally different it's still bowie but it's just totally different and yeah that that craze kind of got me up until until scary monsters and then uh a few years later i would say like 2013 2014 i i did like this insane deep dive where i i listened to nothing but his back catalog and you know, the, the eighties, nineties, two thousands, everything, uh, for like better part of like two years. That's all I listened to right up until black star. And when, when Bowie, when we knew that we were getting that album and the first video dropped, there was just like Bowie mania. Like the, like I had a friend at work that that's all we talked about. We read all the magazines and you know, our family's really into Bowie and we, that's all we ever kind of talked about. And it was almost like the Beatles are coming, like Bowie's releasing another album. It was just Bowie mania. And then we all know what happened, you know, a couple of days after the album dropped. And yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my, my 12 year old self didn't quite understand, you know, what to make of the likes of Moss Garden or, or Warsaw. Those were maybe a bit too mature or 
either that or I, I just wasn't interested at the time. I was typically just turning these songs on and skipping past them if a riff or melody didn't catch my attention in like the first 20 seconds. But yeah, there was one point in high school where I really got into station to station, uh, like the, the, the track station to station. I, I got obsessed with it and would just play it over and over and over again. And the first leg of that song in particular excited me. And I kind of went, oh, okay, this is something good. This is something different and it kicks ass. Uh, if I had to pinpoint an exact moment that my interest really began peaking, it was probably there. That record and that period of Bowie in general, just that material, it really expanded my taste a lot more. The world of Brian Eno soon opened up and I would begin hearing about all the groups that Bowie was interested in during that period, like Noi and Kraftwerk and Can. Uh, it opened up so many doors for me, ambient recordings, Tangerine Dream. Uh, all of this was made possible for me uh, around the time I got into Station to Station and moved on to the likes of Low. before I realized that I was a, a fully-fledged music nerd. <laughs> and you can really make one of those flow charts that people do on Reddit all the time, where it, it starts at a, a couple of Bowie albums, and by the time you've reached the end of the chart, you've just got music covered. Like, not just pop or rock and roll, like, you've actually got music in its entirety covered. But you know, to wrap this up, in short, I discovered different albums and different eras of Bowie throughout different periods of my life. I really built up my fandom in bunches, which is a great way to do it because the bulk of Bowie's material or the overwhelming majority of it, it all came out before I was born. You know, I didn't get to appreciate it, you know, on a year by year basis when it came out. And this isn't an artist discography that I'd recommend consuming all at once. I was fortunate enough to piece it all together bit by bit you know, a few albums a year rather than all 30 at once or whatever he has in his catalog at this point. I'm not sure the exact number, but I think there's 20, think, 26 studio albums. And yeah, there, there's a lot to digest in, in each of them. So yeah, I, I definitely went through it in a similar fashion where it, it took, you know, you eat an elephant one bite at a time type thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would never recommend listening to all 26 in a batch. I think going that route would be damaging to your listening experience and the interpretation process. Most of his albums deserve time. They're worthy of thorough dissection. They need to be put under a magnifying glass about nine times out of 10. It's a very daunting task, but I, I feel like that's what we're setting out to do with the Fantastic Voyage podcast. In many ways, this is going to be not only a voyage for us, but for you, the listener. It's an exciting career with so many hard left turns that you, you lose count of them. And now that David's unfortunately left us and there's nothing, for, uh, nothing more to look forward to, we're now only left with the option of revisiting what he's left behind for us, which is a collection of albums and songs that I'll forever be grateful to have had the chance to consume there's that quote that was going viral around the time of Bowie's death from Simon Pegg that was something along the lines of, if you're ever sad, just remember the world is over 4 billion years old and you somehow managed to exist at the same time as David Bowie. <laughs> as a best. sentiment, I can wholeheartedly get behind that. And I consider myself very lucky to be living in the year 2021 and having the chance to do this show with you and celebrate one of the undeniably greatest careers that ever was and ever will be. You said it pretty good. So I say without further ado, let's let's get into the 1967 debut album from David Bowie titled None Other Than David Bowie. It's a bit of a polarizing album, isn't it? Or 
is it even a polarizing album? I feel like it's one that people just don't really care for, that they look at it as sort of a, an embarrassment uh, compared to the likes of the rest of his career. I, I think it's one that you have to kind of listen to with, with I'm not necessarily sure if you needed the context of what went into the, the making of this or where he was kind of at. I, I feel though, like this is, yeah, it, it's, if you like it, you're a part of a, a cult that, that follows this album. It's not, uh, it's not for everybody. It's a record that people are typically very dismissive of in part, I think, because Bowie sort of guided the conversation to be that way. He encouraged us to be dismissive of it because he was very dismissive of it. He was really embarrassed. There's an interview he did with Lenny Kay. That's a Patty Smith group, uh, the Patty Smith group's bassist. Uh, okay. He's also, yeah. he's also famous for like compiling those nuggets compilations, those great sixties psychedelic garage rock compilations. That oh, those are great. Yeah. They've got a, you know, a bunch of obscure tracks from that era. So. Liar, liar by the castaways. Yeah. So yeah. I think he also served as like a studio basis for REM, but anyway, he's well decorated. And he interviewed David during the Ziggy Stardust tour. And at one point, Lenny makes a reference to the self-titled debut that we're talking about today. And Bowie just sort of goes, Oh, that thing. And proceeds to flat out lie about how enthusiastic he was about the album at the time and about how much time was spent on it. He claims, or at least in this interview, he claimed that it was done on like this very semi-professional basis and that he made it while he was still working his advertisement job and that he would work on it periodically on weekends and sick days. Like you'd say, you know, I'd take a sick day to, to do a song. It, it's all a flat out lie, you know. Yeah, he, he, wasn't, quitted, he wasn't working. <laughs> no, he, he quit that job several years before even recording this thing. And if you listen to uh, one of the interviews he does in, in 1968 on Bowie at the Bee by can't remember which track it slapped at the end of, I think maybe Silly Boy Blue, but he contradicts this story. He, he tells the actual truth. He doesn't undersell how much time was spent on this thing. He says, you know, we started in November 66 and finished it by, you know, June 1967 or whatever it was. You know, there was a substantial amount of effort put into this. But well, and, and not only that, but the when they were happy with a song or they thought that they could have some success with it, they'd, they'd go in and re-record it and... and mm -hmm put that out as a single or at least a few of them they actually put out as a single but they would re-record songs thinking oh we've got a hit finally and it wasn't of course until much later that he finally found that that what is such a one hit wonder type song in space oddity uh but it, obviously his career turned into much more than that but yeah no he he was quite devastated at how this album kind of didn't take off once it was put out same day as Sgt. Pepper. And maybe it's that rejection that really got to him, but somewhere along the way, Bowie got really embarrassed by this thing. This is an album that he would ultimately try to bury. He really tried his hardest to, to hide this album's existence uh, almost immediately after releasing it too. Like he winds up calling his next album, David Bowie as well. Like, kind of as a way of saying, no, actually, this is the first one. You know, that right. last one? What are you talking about? This is the first one right here. And it's, it's reception over the years, I think, has suffered in part because of that. But I don't want to make too many excuses for this record because I do understand where a lot of that embarrassment is coming from regardless. This album can be over the top and obnoxiously silly at times. But some of that silliness, I think you and I will ultimately come to an agreement on, it can be appreciated. You might have to pick your spots a bit, but 
part of the beauty of Bo, uh, the part of the beauty of Bowie's catalog is that even his bad albums are fascinating, and I think this album is no exception. Uh, you know, there's there's really a lot to unpack here, and and I can't wait to get started. So shall we? Let's do track one, uh, Uncle Arthur. Yeah, so Uncle Arthur is one of what we're going to get into quite a bit of today. Songs about growing up, not wanting to grow up. Is David Bowie Peter Pan in disguise on, on this album? It, a lot of stuff about kids. Uh, Un- Uncle Arthur is, uh, well, it's about, what's it about? It's about a, a man who, who works at like a, a shop of some sort. I don't know if they actually talk about what it is. Um, he reads Batman. Uh, he he leaves his mother for his for a wife. Find, or finds a woman, runs off with her, but then eventually comes running back to his mom at the end. Comes back to his senses. Right. Yeah. Um, it's 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 just it's kind of a weird song. Uh, it's 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 got that classic trademark of this album, kind of baroque pop. Uh, it's very kind of classical sounding, very whimsical. Uh, it's a solid song. It's got, it, it's, it, yeah, like you said, it's, it's silly. Yeah, it is very whimsical. And this one and, and a lot of these, they're very English. Uh, you know, this sounds like a, it's a clap along, you know, it's a fun little ditty that sounds like it was maybe supposed to be sung drunkenly in unison at a pub or something. You know, it has Uncle very, Arthur. And then some, like a call and repeat type thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It, it has some very distinctive English qualities, which, I feel like those were David's greatest inspiration on this record. He mentioned Sid Barrett and Anthony Newley as the first people he'd ever heard making pop music with these very exaggerated British accents. And it's that Anthony Newley cockney tongue in cheek musical sort of thing that he emulates on really this entire record. This album will have a few peaks and valleys in terms of mood, but you know, Uncle Arthur is very charismatic. Uh, it's very tongue in cheek and it's a character sketch, which will, ultimately serve as a, a pretty good tone setter and a sign of things to come as far as the rest of this album is concerned. Uh, speaking of the inspiration of this one, uh, I read somewhere, so Deck Fernley is the name of the, uh, the bassist on this entire album. Uh, he also right. did, the, he did the arrangements with Bowie, uh, something that Bowie kind of had to just learn how to do him him and Fernley I think they took out a book or something from the library and learned how to transpose music to to write uh or not transpose but how to write music so that they can hand the session musicians some sheets and say uh can you follow along to this and I think some session musicians even like walked out saying like this is rubbish but you know he he got better at it or at least Mick Ronson did uh (laughs) a few years later um, but anyway, yeah, Deck Fernley, apparently um, Bowie spent some time at his, with Deck at, at his brother's house, at, at Deck Fernley's brother's house, uh, who had nieces and nephews like hanging around all the time. And Fernley seemed to think that this song might have been about him, Uncle Arthur. and Because it, 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 he lied to David about his age, right? He said he was like, his because David's like 19 or something. He, he like, said oh, he yeah. was... 20 something and he was really 32 or 33 or something like that yeah does Fernley look like Ringo at all because uh, <laughs> as illustrated on the cover of the, the images compilation we're led to believe that Uncle Arthur looks a lot like Ringo like, I, yeah. I don't know that's a fascinating cover I might add uh, images uh, for those who might not know is this 
collection of Dierum era Bowie tracks that got released in the early 70s, I guess, as a way of capitalizing on his rising stardom at like the peak of his Ziggy era. Came out if right I, after Ziggy, between yeah, that and Aladdin Sane, I think. Yeah. If, if I recall correctly, a lot of the material from his debut and, and from that period had just gone out of print in North America. So they repackaged it all and, you know, say what you will about the songs, but the packaging is undeniably fantastic. It's a perfect example of why I love to own physical copies of certain records. It's a gatefold cover in the front and back feature these cartoon strips with illustrations depicting each song. It's a cover I love to hold while I listen to the record because the pictures are just so enamoring. They, they really reel you in and put you in the setting of whatever song you're listening to. They serve as a guide almost as for how you're supposed to interpret each track and it, it makes for a completely different experience. The, it kind of looks like uh, if you were to squint or, or cross your eyes and put it next to Cheap Thrills, uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company, they looks like the same kind of artwork. Very, very similar. Is it the same artist? I don't know who the artist was for, for the Images album. Uh, I, I think I read somewhere that it it may not have been the same as Cheap Thrills, but they, they may have done some work for like Zappa. Well, that would make sense, though, because Bowie was pitching a few of these songs, or maybe his manager at the time, Ken Pitt, was. They pitched a couple of the songs off this record to Big Brother and Holding Company. So that connection, I, I can there. see where that might be the case. Images is also a great LP to own because it has a lot of the better tracks from this era that didn't wind up on the album, like Karma Man and London Boys, uh, songs that we're planning on touching on in a later episode, so stay tuned. But I definitely recommend snagging that compilation if you ever come across it at you know, your local record store. Uh, but I don't know, did, did you have anything to add uh, on, on Uncle Arthur? I think that pretty much covers it. So uh, to the, let's... To the next song, I Can't Give Everything Away. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we still got to still a ways to go, don't we? <laughs> yeah, the, this was a quick. This is the uh, <laughs> yeah the abridged version of Bowie's career. <laughs> he, he got a little bit different along the way. Spoiler alert. Yeah, a little bit. So the, the second song is "Sell Me a Coat." Um. Yeah, this one. Uh, speaking of trying to give songs away, maybe he was trying to give this one to Peter, Paul and Mary, I think, or a few songs he was trying to give to Peter, Paul and Mary. Yeah. I've got that Nicholas Pegg complete David, but Judy Collins was another one too. Uh, and he, he offered a few to her. I think they rejected them all, but it, it's so funny because when I was reading that book, it, pretty much at the, the passage at, at the end of every passage for every song on this album, it just says offered to Peter, Paul and Mary rejected. Like, yeah. <laughs> like half of these songs, he, he you know, sent to them and they were like, ah, we'll just stick to these Bob Dylan covers instead. This one, when I put on the, the album version of it, I was kind of missing. I, I think I prefer the, the single version of it. It was re-recorded. Uh, I think the, is it on images, the re-recording? No, it's just it's on, on love the, you till Tuesday. Right. And the Deerham anthology. Right. Yeah. So it, it was like, Oh, it's missing. I it's that it's this version of it. it's a bit more stripped down. I was also listening. I was listening to it on a hot day too. It, it kind of it, oh, that'll ruin it. <laughs> it, it. Yeah, it's kind of a wintry song. I mean, it, the opening vocal is talking about winter snowflakes and stuff, so it didn't play well. It was like plus thirty five or something that day here in uh, uh, in Winnipeg. I'm glad you agree because the arrangement on on this album version I always thought was a bit too sparse too, and it's not really a popular opinion. Uh, that version on Love You Till Tuesday that you mentioned, I totally prefer that. You know, he recorded that, I guess, maybe about a year or so later. 
yeah. with this group he was leading at the time called the Feathers, consisting of soon-to-be girlfriend Hermione and, and John Hutchinson. The Feathers provide this really dominant backing vocal on the re-recorded version, and it really brings the track to life, in my opinion. You know how this album version ends with Bowie's like kind of super psychedelic double track vocals singing at different points and creating a, a sort of weird wall of sound and echo? Yeah. The Feathers version sounds like that all of the time. And it's just throughout the entire track, it's a lot fuller. I've seen critics attack this version because Bowie's lead vocal gets a little buried in the mix, but I like the arrangement a lot more. And I think that matters more than the levels to me, uh, at least in this scenario, it does. Yeah. Uh, you got anything else to say about Sell Me a Coat? It's, it's not one of my favorites. It's, uh, it, it's there. It, it's okay. Yeah, it's, 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 it's one of the many songs on this LP that has those very childlike qualities to it. And without the dreamier psychedelic harmonies of the Feathers version, I, I just can't quite get past some of the juvenile lyrics. So uh, it's an okay song, but you know, uh, if it didn't exist, I wouldn't lose sleep. So on to uh, to Rubber Band, another single, another one that was re-recorded. Oh yeah, Bowie, you uh, <laughs> this was done so quick, you just forgot about it as soon as you finished it. No, you you put in a lot of work on this. <laughs> uh, this one actually, the, the single that came out, uh, Rubber Band. I, I was looking at a, kind of a history of Deerham Records, and this was the sixth song that came out on Deerham Records. Or sorry, yeah, on Deerham through uh, it's a it was a a sub label of uh, of Decca um, that I guess started in '66 and this came out as a single, I think ahead of the album. Is that is that right? Yeah, this this was the lead single for the album and the first single that he would put out uh, on the Deerham label. And I must say, it's a pretty odd choice. Rubber Band feels dated even for its time. And I feel bad for David a lot in this era because, you know, he was really struggling at times. I think I read that he'd been booed off stage when he was performing with the King Bees uh, a couple years prior. And you know, he went backstage and cried and he'd had singles flop and his career was really going nowhere. But in this instance, it's hard to work up the same degree of empathy because like, what was he thinking making this a single? You know, London Boys was the B-side which is definitely not as upbeat and commercial, but at that point, it's a song. Even, it doesn't even matter at that point, right? Like when it's that much superior of a song to Rubber Band, I'd have been pushing to, to just use that instead. But uh, nonetheless, here we are with, with Rubber Band. <laughs> there, uh, now I'm getting my versions mixed up, but there's, there's a version where he, it's a real low kind of draw for the first kind of three quarters of the, the song. I, I prefer the one where he kind of hits a higher octave like right away kind of I, I can't remember which one's which but i definitely prefer that version of rubber band if i had to pick one but yeah it's this is one of his weaker one of his weaker songs of the era i guess like it is very of its time at least thematically in the sense that it's about a man returning from war kind of similar to little bombardier in that regard which we'll, we'll get to later I think what's interesting, at least in terms of how it fits in with the rest of the, this record, is that it it deals with trauma and, and heartbreak, and that's sneakily a recurring theme on this album. It creates this weird dichotomy because we also have a lot of juvenilia on this record. It's very fluffy and naive in spots, but we'll do a 180 at the drop of the hat and, and be very sad and heartbreaking in others. 
love you till Tuesday is the next one. Now we're starting to get a bit better now. This is a this is a much better song. Uh, maybe one of my favorites on the album. Uh, I'd have to think about it. I, I've never really ranked these <laughs> these songs before. It's actually kind of funny when I not to get too off track, but when I think about this era and when I sat down and listened to this album, I, I never put this album on. I put images on or I put the Deerham anthology on. Kind of forget kind of forget how many good songs aren't on this album. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, yeah, Love You Till Tuesday. Uh, yeah, it was recorded a couple times. There's a few versions of this. Um, Sid Barrett said he, he reviewed this in a uh, for I forget what magazine it was. Melody. Melody. Maker. Yeah. It, yeah. They had a... like a they had like a an artist review series. And he said something like, yeah, th- well, it's a joke, right? Like people like jokes. So I guess I like this this song, but. <laughs> It's kind of funny that one of his contemporaries who we really looked up to ended up thinking it was funny at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I, I have the interview, I just pulled it up here. Uh, word for word. He says, it's a joke number. Jokes are good. Everybody likes jokes. The Pink Floyd likes jokes. The it's Pink very, Floyd. <laughs> it's very casual. If you play it a second time, it might be even more of a joke. Jokes are good. The Pink Floyd <laughs> like jokes. I think that was a funny joke. I think people will like the bit about it being Monday, when in fact it was Tuesday. Very chirpy, but I don't think my toes were tapping at all. I don't think my... <laughs> it's funny. I, I actually kind of like the, the tune. Like, lyrics aside, the lyrics are, are hilarious, but the, well, the tune aside, I, I could tap to this one. Well, I think it, it would have been a much better lead single than Rubber Band, and it was the next single, I believe, uh, Bowie's manager at the time, Ken Pitt, felt some type of way about this review from Sid Barrett. He wasn't pleased with how he so cheekily kind of patronized the song. I think Pitt saw this as having a lot of potential as a single, and it certainly did. It's very up-tempo and bouncy and colorful. Definitely a trend in 1967, but I think the the faux Anthony Newley act here is, is maybe a bit too prominent. I've also seen Ken Pitt, his manager, at least at the time, he was sort of blamed for this Anthony Newley wrote Bowie was taking, and I'm not sure what people are basing this off of. Throughout history, he's been unfairly casted as this old man with a dated view on pop culture, forcing Bowie to make this album the way it sounded, the scapegoat, if you will. The Wikipedia page for this album said that the desire of Bowie's then manager, Ken Pitt, for Bowie to become a full or an all-around entertainer rather than a rock star impacted the songwriter's style and this is just utterly baseless. Pitt definitely encouraged him to, you know, to take the stage and to shoot videos, but make no mistake about it. Bowie was emulating Anthony Newley by choice. He made that decision. He was a Newley fan. You know, it was Newley and Sid Barrett that he was infatuated the most with during this period, you know, on himself. This narrative also unfairly assumes that, you know, because Pitt was a bit older, that he would have been about, I guess, what, 45 in this period while Bowie was only 19 or 20. You know, Pitt is painted as this traditionalist square which once again, just couldn't be further from the truth. He had a really good ear for talent and had his ear to the underground. On one particular trip to the US during the recording of this album, Pitt discovered the yet to be released Velvet Underground and Nico LP, as well as a record by the Fugs. You know, two very avant-garde and groundbreaking acts of the time. Certainly nothing you know, a square old man would be interested in if he was so oblivious to where it's to the direction of alternative music was headed. And so he brings the records back with him to the UK and introduces Bowie to them. And it's kind of carved, 
carved out his his next steps really yeah like it's pit that kickstarts bowie's lou reed obsession bowie started performing i'm waiting for the man as part of his live sets shortly after the release of this album so did you know, did bowie play- move in with him too did i think bowie moved in with ken pitt like he actually lived with him for a little bit they were very close it wouldn't surprise me but i think his dad kicked him out or, or said like <laughs> no more handouts uh, yeah i i, I can't, you know what i i've read where whenever I read that, it was a long time ago, so I'd have to get my story straight. That that might be totally wrong. Um, we'll get tweets at us, <laughs> tell correcting us, perhaps. Correct us, yeah, yeah. If we if we do, but he, he may have moved. Things. He may have lived with him for for a little while. A- anyway, back to your Ken Pitt. Well, yeah, I mean, just to wrap it up, to blame him for steering Bowie's career in the into the gutter is just something that it doesn't sit well with me. Just not only because it's not true it's malicious but you know it's just it's yeah it's just it's not true but uh you know other than that you know th- this song is uh it is kind of upbeat but it, it's also it's kind of rapey like <laughs> that notion yeah. gets it gets buried a little bit because the music is so happy go lucky uh it almost sounds like it, it could be the theme song to some sort of campy game show you know what it reminds me of it, it especially the vocal and like the first line it it's like he's auditioning for like uh like a Rankin Bass production, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, like one of those Christmas specials. It's very kind of showy, show tuny. Like it sounds like it could have been on uh, like that Burgermeister, Meister Burgers. Yeah. yeah, like that Christmas special. I don't know. It it has that it made for t- make made for per- television kind of sound. I, I don't know. And it is that like that first line that you mentioned. I mean, that is one of the rapier lines. You know, he says, "Just look through your window. Look who sits outside." Little outside. Me is, little me is waiting, standing through the night. And after that, he says, uh, "Who's that hiding in the apple tree, clinging to a branch? Don't be afraid. It's only me, hoping for a little romance." <laughs> yeah, that's this some. Is, this is that's... quite the the obsessive stalker David's portraying here. But that's he's pretty, some he... Ted Bundy shit. <laughs> But, but he pretties it up and makes it sound really innocent with this kind of laughing gnome style arrangement. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, love you till Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, let's let's move on um, to perhaps the the praying ground. Uh, the the next song is probably my favorite on the album. Uh, it's it's there is a happy land. Uh, this is, I mean, I kind of compared Bowie to Peter Pan uh, earlier in this episode. I, I think this is his Peter Pan song. Um, Peter Pan in this song? <laughs> a lot of... <laughs> oh, it's kind of like the Lost Boys is, is who he's kind of talking about. You know, mm-hmm. all, all the friends, he goes through them and what they're getting up to in a all in a day's... It, it reminds me of summer holidays. You know, you wake up and, oh yeah, it's still summer mm-hmm. holidays. Like, I, oh, those days were great. And I think that's what Bowie was thinking too. I, oh, I wish I could go back to that. He, he definitely taps into that. I think childhood innocence is just very beautifully summed up on there's a happy land. It's a world in which adults cannot grasp the joys of being a child. They're too occupied with being grownups, you know, being miserable adults. There is a happy land is this dreamland with Charlie Brown and Tiny Tim and Sissy Steve who plays with girls. One yeah. of the great Bowie characters, by the way, you know, there's Major Tom, Ziggy Stardust, and, and Sissy Steve. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's all these sort of spectacular characters. Uh, and adults find it all to be silly and naive, but 
David taking on the persona of a child here is essentially looking at them and saying, actually, you're the foolish ones. We're living in a dreamland and you're not capable of understanding it. You've been fundamentally destroyed and the ability to comprehend any of this charm has been sucked out of you. It's like reversing their supposed sophistication and yeah. using it against them. And it's brilliant. The joy of being a child is carried out so well in every single line. One that always sticks out to me, and I'm sure it will for you as well, is when he says, mother calls, but we don't hear. There's lots more things to do. Our mom would always whistle to us when we were outside. You know, I remember that park. whistle. Yeah, We'd be at the park or something, you know, playing two blocks away playing basketball or marbles, doing whatever we were doing, you know, whatever fun we were having in our happy land. And mom would whistle very loudly so we could hear, like you said, from even if she was from a distance, two blocks away. And that was always our signal that meant, you know, okay, getting late, getting dark, time to come home. And in the song, David's response to this is, you know, it's only five o'clock and we're not tired yet, but we will be. But we will be very Very shortly. (laughs) So, you know, it's very easy to be taken back to that time when he's reasonable. Yeah. (laughs) Just give it, give it, give it an hour, you know? So it's a very stress-free environment that, you know, humans ultimately become robbed of during adulthood. I don't quite know where that threshold ends for us, uh, all I know is that I've reached it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and apparently Bowie had too, because he, he seems very sad that he has maybe left that, that part of his life. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I like how he kind of, or I at least view it as, you know, the ending where he's just. It's, it's perfect. You he's know, mocking the grown up. Go away, yeah. sir. You know, I used to, I used to hate that part, but then I, my interpretation switched to exactly what you just said it's yeah he's like filling his nose and sticking his tongue out yeah yeah, rubbing you know their miserable lives in their faces you're on the other side of the fence yeah yeah and i uh, I like the way he channels it into like the you know your first day back at school after summer break where the teacher puts you up and says okay tell us about your summer vacation and it's kind of like he's, you know, a grade two kid up at the front of the class talking all about what they did over summer break. And that's, mm-hmm. it comes oh, out in song. Yeah. yeah. Definitely a highlight for me. I'm glad to hear that it's your favorite. I don't know if it's my number one, but it's definitely easily in the top half uh, for this record. But now a not so happy land. <laughs> yeah. Talk about a, uh, a, a juxtaposition. Um we are hungry men is the next song on the album. Um, it's about killing kids, essentially. <laughs> the, it's about it's about preparing documents to legalize mass abortion, uh, turning blind eyes to infanticide, and it's just it's weird. He recorded it uh, the same day as there is a happy land, so. But he always knew that he was going to follow up there as a happy line with this song, I'm guessing. Yeah. You know, he should have come out singing this song or, or thank God he didn't come out uh, at like live aid. Oh my God. <laughs> that would have been bad. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, of, of all the politically charged songs of its time, nothing stands out like this one. I mean, absolutely nothing. Bowie is playing the role of a, a theoretical leader on this track. You know, this maniacal man who becomes irrationally paranoid with the with the threat of overpopulation, which in the 1960s was a very big deal to a lot of people. I, I think this song would have maybe made a bit more sense in its time because the people he's mocking here were a lot more prominent then. Just to give you an idea of where people's minds were, there's a Star Trek episode from the 60s where 
Kirk is abducted from a race of aliens in an overpopulated planet. And they set him up and they deceive him so that he kisses this girl in hopes that in the process he'll transmit a virus that they don't have immunity to and help essentially kill off some of their overpopulated planet. So this was very much in the public consciousness at the time. It still is now to a lesser degree, but you know, now COVID's taking care of that. Now, now it's usually just your boomer uncle who's gone too far down the conspiracy rabbit hole and is now convinced that China made COVID nineteen in a lab to, you know, wipe us, the enemy, off the earth or some shit. But you know, of all the crazy stories Bowie concocted on this album, I think this is my favorite uh, for the fact that it's just so absurd. You've got this paranoid lunatic who thinks overpopulation is going to lead us to the point of there being like no space left on earth that the, the air is going to run out and so his solution is emphasize cannibalism and, and slaughtering anyone he catches breathing too much you know imagine picking this up at the record store when you were shopping for Sir, uh sergeant peppers in june of 1967 which sold especially, out and, especially yeah. considering the fact that a handful of people at the time were very paranoid about this sort of thing of course this is hyperbolic i don't think any of them were going this far but maybe this helped illustrate just how illogical some of them were becoming. There is a book called, uh, called make room, make room by, uh, hang on. I got it written down somewhere because it was a good little note. Uh, Harry Harrison is the author's name. Uh, it was about rapid population growth and the, their, their solution was cannibalism. So I, that could be where he got the, uh, we are hungry men from and that you know that the end of the song there's like eating yeah and he burps somebody yeah somebody and then they they let out a little belt (laughs) so i think that could have been what the infanticide ended up that's how it was carried out was just through i I don't know they had a big hog roast and (laughs) down (laughs) down the hatch Uh, yeah it's it's a weird song it's kind of (laughs) good it's kind of a good song but it's it's just weird Definitely weird. And, you know, just to reiterate my point earlier about Kent Pitt, you know, the quote unquote square old man that was holding Bowie back, would a square really have given David the green light for a track like this? No. I, I, think, I think it was Bowie's ability to pull this sort of thing off that, that Pitt was really pitching to labels like, you know, hey, check it out. This guy's different. You know, this kid is wild and he's got fantastic ideas. You know, give him a chance. Uh, he definitely wasn't being restrictive in any way. You know, this album is filled with risky song subjects. Yeah. And also, like I mentioned earlier, just great sequencing. You know, there is a happy land and now a not so happy land. And uh, now, unless you had anything else to add, another nope. ha- another happy dream track. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When, when I live my dream. Um, yeah, this is again, what a yeah contrast. This is a nice one. Uh, this was part of the Love You Till Tuesday um, video. Was that a, what's that called? A video album? What would you call think, Love You Till Tuesday? It was, uh, was it, it a was special? Like a, a film, yeah. It, that was Ken Pitt's last ditch effort to save Bowie's career. I think he stopped managing him shortly after that. It was kind of like, all right, you know, let's get you out to a wider audience. Let's have you, you know, showing that you can act as well. And we'll re-record some of these songs. And really just a last ditch attempt to, you know, make something of David. The acting in the vi- <laughs> these videos aren't isn't very good. It doesn't really showcase it. Maybe like they had planned and maybe that's why he didn't stick. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, this is kind of a weird video, but it's a great song. It's, it's very nice. It kind of paints a picture of, uh, you know, what he's got a dream and he's going to take his lover with him uh, on this 
wherever he's going. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a nice little kind of a more ballady song. Um, di- kind of different for the album, actually. Uh, maybe even a little bit of a kind of prelude to some of the stuff a bit later on, like kind of hunky dory vibes on this one. I could see like Andy Williams or something doing this. Uh, maybe if the words were a bit different, cause he's, you know, deals with a bit more of mature themes, but yeah. Bowie, Bowie and Ken Pitt, they really tried to make this one work. Didn't they? Like, I think David was very proud of this song. Him and Pitt both saw potential here and it's one that they really refused to put down. Uh, you know, not only you mentioned that it was in the Love You Till Tuesday film, another one that they re-recorded for the film, uh, a version that I don't really care for. They proposed it to Deerham as a single, but Deerham rejected it. But that didn't stop them from trying to make it click. Bowie also used this in a weird BBC television drama. He was in with Lindsay Kemp called The Looking Glass Murders. He recorded a German version of it as well in hopes of uh, gaining some international success. And it was also a song he chose to perform when he earned a, when he entered a, an international song festival in 1969. He did this sort of big band arrangement, uh, but it, it, he wound up losing uh, to a, to some sort of child performer. Uh, I can't remember her name, but but as you see, he kept coming back to it. You know, he was really proud of this one and really wanted it to work, but it just never seemed to resonate with anyone else. It's also kind of sad in a way because the lyrics to me sound very self-referential at points. This album sketches out a lot of eccentric characters for us that are quite clearly being narrated in the third person, but the narrator in this song is talking more in the first person. You know, when he belts out, tell them I've got a dream and tell them you're the starring role. He really delivers it so passionately and I can't help but think he's maybe just playing himself here. He obviously has ambitions of his own and, you know, dreams of becoming a successful entertainer and at this point has failed miserably. So I feel like he, he might just be dramatizing his, his own emotions here. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Lindsay Kemp because this song was played for Lindsay Kemp uh, shortly before Bowie saw him for the first time performing some kind of like, I don't even know what it was, some kind of performance. I don't know what it was called. Um, but Bowie was in the audience and saw Lindsey Kemp performing to this song. And he thought, Oh my God, like I got to meet this guy after he likes my music. Mm -hmm. And the story kind of goes the next day. He was his student and he taught him how to do mime. And they actually, they, they shacked up together for a while. Um, and he was very, very devastated when, when Bowie Oh, I can't remember who it was. It might not have been Hermione, but he realized that Bowie was into girls as well. And it, it kind of crushed Lindsay Kemp and it ruined their friendship for a while. And I think eventually they made amends and performed together on stage again. But yeah, it's very significant in that it led to his, his brief relationship with, with Lindsay Kemp, who was a huge influence on his career. I do think this is one of the better songs I love how it explodes at the end. I don't really have any gripes with it compositionally, but the lyrics are maybe what held this one back and maybe what turned people off. You know, what he, maybe I'll slay a dragon for you. I mean, like, really? We're slaying dragons now? And the one line that people have been trying to figure out what the fuck he meant on for years was, trees will play the rhythm of my dream. 
Uh, yeah, he's... If anyone has the answer to that and wants to tweet it out, uh, feel free, but uh, good luck. <laughs> Another one that he offered to Peter, Paul, and Mary, by the way. And it's went... very, yeah, this should have been done by Peter, Paul, and Mary. That would have been great. So, so that'll conclude side side one or side a of, of the self-titled David Bowie, 1967 album. Uh, we will continue this, this journey through the career of David Bowie uh, next time as we turn it over to side B. Uh, any closing thoughts on, on this side? Yeah, I think we summed <laughs> up the songs nicely and we hope that we get to have you back with us when we get into side B. All right. Well, thanks for listening to the debut, the inaugural uh, episode of Fantastic Voyage. I'm Jesse. I'm John. And thanks for tuning in. <laughs>